Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. My guest today is UConn Associate Professor of English and a friend and colleague, Anna Mae Duane. Her brand new book, Educated for Freedom, tells the amazing story of two fugitive African-American schoolboys in the early 19th century who grew up to change the nation during the country's long struggle against slavery. Though James McEwen Smith and Henry Garnett may not be as well known to many of us as, say, Frederick Douglass or David Walker, Duane's amazing new study shows us in a very powerful way why they ought to be. It's a great and surprising story, and it's coming up right now on Grading the Nutmeg. Anna Mae Duane is one of those people who seems to be everywhere and know everyone, while getting more done in a week than most people accomplish in a year. She's an associate professor of English at the University of Connecticut, where she teaches classes in African-American literature, disability studies, childhood studies, and early American literature. She's the author, editor, or in one case, co-editor of four volumes in the past 10 years, (laughs) I add, whose topics include race, childhood suffering and violence, child slavery, and African-American children's literature. While doing all this, she found time to edit the American Antiquarian Society's Journal of Early America titled Commonplace and to apply for and receive support from prestigious institutions such as the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Fulbright Organization, and the Gilder Learman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Anna Mae, I'm getting tired just reading this. It's amazing. Oh, well, thank you so much. Would you like to take a nap? You must be. No, I am am ready to talk. Okay. Well, we're here to talk about Anna Mae Duane's newest book, just released a few days ago by New York University Press, a book that ties together themes she's been working out in one form or another in her previous works and which in this book come together in what is simply a tour de force, a powerful, readable, fascinating narrative and astonishing insight. It's an amazing book. It's called Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation. And it is an incredible story. Um, Anna Mae, thanks for coming to talk about it. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Anna Mae, in this book, you tell the story of two African-American men, James McCune Smith and Henry Highland Garnet, who met at the Mulberry Street New York African Free School and went on, each in their own way, to have a tremendous influence on antebellum America's national debate about slavery. So let's start at the place where they met. Tell us about the New York African Free School and its origins. It is really an incredible school. I was so surprised to find out about it at all. It is. Uh, it was created in 1787, so before the Constitution was ratified. Uh, we have Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, other founding father types, um, the elite of New York, a lot of them are Quaker merchants, and they form what's called the New York Manumission Society, which is dedicated to the gradual abolition of slavery. And they decide that um, if this is going to happen, we need to get people ready for We need to sort of train the next generation that is going to inherit this freedom. Uh, and so they start the New York African Free School. There wind up, there's about six of them, uh, though the one that my subjects attend seems to be where most of the action is happening. In in Manhattan, I assume, where is Mulberry Street? It's in, so uh, if your listeners are familiar with uh, the movie, the Martin Scorsese movie from some time ago, it's in the Five Points uh, area of New York City, which is kind of a rough neighborhood. It's a mixed race neighborhood in that lower Manhattan area. Uh, And was it, was it in the Early 18th, early or late 18th, early 19th century, was it a tough neighborhood then too? At that point, I don't think it has the reputation yet that it gains. And actually, the first school was like a little uh, uptown. But by the time James McEwen Smith and Henry Helen Garnett are attending this school in the 1820s, it's a rough neighborhood. They talk about having to fight their way through the streets and to get to school. 
So James McCune Smith and Henry Highland Garnet weren't there at the founding of the school. They actually start to attend it, you know, a quarter century later. So it's an established school. Yes. What brings these two young men to the school? How do they get there? Well, they take very different paths to this school. For James McCune Smith, uh, I guess I should preface by saying, wait, how much we know about them as children is uh, largely a, a function of luck. What, what I was able to find in the archives and what other people remember about them, because neither of them were famous and neither of them have families that kept their records. So from what we know about James McCune Smith, he seems to have been in New York from a young age. His mother was self-emancipated. That was the term he always used, that she had freed herself. We don't know much about who his father was. It was him and his mother for most of his life. And he lived in the neighborhood, and he was an ambitious kid, and that is where you went. And really, it was the only game in town if you were an African-American child who wanted um, an education. Henry Highland Garnett had a much more arduous path to this school. He started out, he was uh, born uh, enslaved, in a Maryland plantation and lived in slavery until he was about nine years old. And his, uh, they get word that they're going to change the, the, the ownership is going to change of the plantation or the, and there's going to be some sort of um, personnel change that is going to split up the family. And Henry Helen Garnett's mother says, we are getting out of here. And, and it's his mother who makes the decision to escape slavery. It is. Henry Ellen Garnett talks about it himself, that she was the one and how much he admired her courage for getting, and not just her and him, the whole family goes. I, I'm, it's quite remarkable. They get permission to attend a funeral, and uncles, father, mother, cousins, they the head out. The whole extended family yeah, leaves yes. Maryland and heads up. Do they go directly to New York? No, they go to Pennsylvania for a while, uh, but they do eventually wind up in New York. Uh, and they wind up being next door to uh, someone who will wind up, who also becomes a giant of abolitionism. And in some ways, it was hard for me to leave out of this book. It was Alexander Crummel, who goes on to fame in all sorts of other ways. And so they sort of land in uh, this community of activism and sort of black accomplishment already. Uh, and so he... He and Alexander Crummel walk to school together, and there they meet James McCune Smith. Now, I get the sense reading your book that the students who went to the New York African Free School, they were exceptional in order to get in the school. Is that how it worked, or, or are the people that you wrote about kind of the, the best students in this school? That is a great question, Walter, because that's one of the questions that I came to with this research, how did the school produce such an incredible set of alumni? Just really, so we have James McCune Smith, who's the first African American to get an MD, Henry Highland Garnett, who addresses Congress. We have the first actor, uh, he's an African American actor, but the first American actor of any race to perform Shakespeare in London. Uh, we have principals and artists. Uh, it's just this incredible crew. What was it about? this school, or, what, or was it something special about these students? And I think it's a combination of both. But in terms of getting in, you would get visited by the schoolmaster or one of the administrators, and they'd sort of decide that if your family was worthy and what that meant is sketchy. Um, uh, now, the administrators and masters are white? Yes. At least when our cohort is there. There was a black principal, John Teesman, for several years. Um, from what I can tell, he is off the scene. They let him go because he has the nerve to um, march in a 4th of July parade. Uh, and they thought that wasn't very decorous. Uh, because, because an African-American is choosing to march in a 4th of July. Right. And parades were kind of rowdy affairs in general. And so they wanted respectability. They didn't want you in the street, maybe. So their principle in this kind of rowdy public celebration or public event was unacceptable. Right. was unheard of. And he saw it very much as claiming public space, celebrating uh, with his community, and he lost his job over that. Um, so by the time our guys are going to school, it's Charles C. Andrews, who is a British schoolmaster, and he's there for about 25 years. Now, what is the, the, the New York Manumission Society, by the time that James McCune Smith and Henry Highland Garnett attend this school, what are their objectives for it? Why, what do they want this school to accomplish? That 
um, is the million dollar question in some ways because it's I don't think they're sure is one of the answers um, I would give to just sort of illustrate this. In the school records, um, there is a speech given by a valedictorian, and, and as you point out, right, this is a school of highly talented students, so a valedictorian um, in this school is quite accomplished, and he gives a speech that uh, um, begins, you know, in very elevated Victorian language, showing how his accomplishments prove equality, and then in the second half of the speech, he's like, well, but it doesn't matter how smart I am because no one's going to give me a job. It doesn't matter if I have the mind of John Locke. I'm not going to get anywhere in this world. And I, I sat there looking at the speech thinking, what is going on here? Uh, why is he— So it's a kind of uplift couched in a background of deep pessimism. Exactly. And I, I think they were—the the administrators and the teachers were kind of at war in the way that I think— the nation was going to be very soon uh, with their ideals and what they could imagine freedom to look like. I think they believed that education was important. I think on some level they really believed in these students, but they couldn't make the leap of imagination of thinking, okay, we believe they're equal. What does that mean? What does that look like? What sort of power would we lose if that happens? Uh, so we get this very mixed message that you should absolutely achieve and excel, but you can't do it here. Right? And, <laughs> and they actually, the school, by, by the time or shortly after your guys are students there, becomes a school that is, is publicly associated with the American colonization movement, right? Now, what's that about? Right. That is, and this was another surprise for me. I don't, Studying this era, I knew about the American colonization movement in society, which was, in a nutshell, basically the idea was, okay, uh, we'll allow for freedom. Uh, we can, you know, free enslaved people, but they can't stay here. We're going to send them back, send them back to a place that most of them had not been, uh, to Liberia, which was a fairly new colony in Africa, and they're going to go and start afresh there. And it's so interesting. It's in many ways, it's considered like a second founding of America, a way of almost rewinding history. Uh, one of the boats is called Mayflower II. Um, and so this gets embraced, this idea. And it wasn't, it seems to us sort of like a crackpot idea now, looking back, but this is how everyone was thinking in the 1820s and 30s, all the most enlightened. So many of the most ardent anti-slavery people want to end slavery so that they can help, they can help all of the Africans or all of the blacks in America repatriate, and I say that yeah. in quotes, mm -hmm. to, to Africa, yes. which they've never seen and which, you know, their, their family in all likelihood is generations removed from. Yes, yes. This sounds like, you know, white people with liberal values wanted to have their cake and eat it too. Absolutely. And I think right, it was about uh, alleviating guilt in some level, right, that we're going to sort of make amends by putting you back and we're going to pretend none of this ever happened. Uh, and I think there's a, also just a real fear of what actual freedom would look like. Now, one side of this is that blacks should go to Africa because they're never going to be accepted by whites in America. It's just the, the, the deck is stacked so far against them that no matter how good they are, they'll never be accepted. But there's another side of that equation that involves a, a cultural belief that blacks are really not capable of full adulthood, right? You write about it that in the book, that there's a kind of, in the culture, this belief in dependent status of... Yes, yeah, I mean, that is an argument for slavery, and it's an argument that even anti-slavery people believe on some level that there's, uh, and, and I mean, partially that's what the school is there to do is to perhaps see if, if it's possible to bring uh, African-Americans out of this state of dependency that can they sort of achieve what adulthood is supposed to look so like. So the school is trying to counter that cultural tendency to say that Africans are dependent by 
you know, genetically dependent or culturally, it's something that they're not, that, that they just aren't capable of achieving full adult status, is it? Right. And in terms of uh, intellectual achievement, in terms of being, I mean, there's a lot of concern about being uh, capable of self-government. There's a lot of, uh, you know, which is, of course, very self-serving that, well, if people have never had to make decisions for themselves, how are they going to make so decisions? So it's a political maturity, primarily. Right. I think political and culturally, there's this word, you know, like self-government can mean a lot of things. So are they going to have the proper morals? Are they going to go to work? Are they going to be able to engage intellectually and, and achieve? And, and the school in some ways, they are putting on performances every year to showcase these kids' accomplishments. Uh, you talk about the students, the, the ones who are showcased in these examination days that White people attend and black people attend and they are big yep. events in New York City right. is to come see how the students at the African preschool are doing, right? Right. Newspapers would uh, come, national newspapers would come and write about these kids. I mean, so in some ways we think the school is, uh, and these kids are sort of in this sort of pocket of history that we don't know about. But at the time, they were the subject of national debate. People were looking at these kids and, and making from announcements about what America's future could be, right? It, and, all these kids and, could make it or they couldn't. Henry McCune Smith is one of these specimen children, right? They're specimens, models of what is possible. And you open the book with him giving a speech to none other than the Marquis de Lafayette. Yes. It's that amazing. It is incredible. He, uh, in terms of, he is all over the records. I mean, in some ways, it's no surprise that he's the one who gets to give the address to, to Marquis de Lafayette because he is uh, all over the records. We have his drawings. Uh, we have we have one drawing that I especially like of Benjamin Franklin. Um, with the coonskin cap, With the cap, coonskin right? cap. is quite good. Uh, and he, uh, he gets to uh, meet the Marquis de Lafayette uh, because in Lafayette's sort of return journey in 1824, which uh, uh, was just this incredible national event. I mean, cities would make buildings. As they're approaching the 50th anniversary of the revolution, and he's one of the last living kind of embodiments of that revolutionary generation. So his return is this moment when America does its accounting of what the revolution meant, right? And, and, and what the outcome of independence was all about. Absolutely. Right. He's making everyone remember uh, both sort of that this generation is passing away and what is their legacy and are we living up to it and what next? So what a moment. Here's this. I think he's 12 years old. The, he's 11. He's 11. Here's this 11-year-old African-American boy demonstrating his suitability for participation in American society to the founder of the revolution in a yes. place that thinks that's just wonderful, but he probably should go to Africa, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, in some ways, it's an incredibly hopeful moment, right? Here's the next generation. Here's the promise of the revolution. Uh, at this, because it was now going to sort of, you know, age into this freedom that um, Lafayette fought for. But we also know sort of with the background of the school, no one knows what that's going to look like, including the school, including James McCune Smith. There's no template for this. So there is this moment of great possibility, but the underlying texture is one that's far less optimistic. Uh, James McCune Smith throughout this education process, realizes at some, at some point, or maybe all the way through, he's being groomed to go back to Africa, that that's the mission of the school, and he really rejects this, right? Right. He rejects it. Uh, I mean, the, and perhaps more importantly, the whole community rejects it. I mean, I think this is one of the lessons maybe that the school didn't intend to teach, but I find incredibly powerful, and I think it influenced both men throughout their lives. Uh, it was actually just after they had um, graduated, but they were both in New York, uh, Smith and Garnett, uh, and it had really reached a fever pitch, this sort of colonizationist teaching. They were, you know, basically training missionaries to go over there. That was becoming, shaping the whole curriculum. And uh, the parents of these kids, right, so poor, uh, largely mothers, uh, 
refused en masse to send their kids to this school. And they wouldn't send them to the school because they said, we don't want our children to be educated by people promoting colonization. Right. That is not what we accept as education. That is not what we accept as freedom. You are not going to dictate what our children's future is. So here, this school run by the New York Manumission right. Society. And this is the elite of New York. Right. Is being told by the black parents of the children they are educating that we're not going to send our children to your school because you're trying to send them to Africa. Yes. What's their response? Their response is, of course, um, shocked incredulity, uh, defensiveness, uh, but they have to give in. Right, that they come to realize that, and this is, I, is sort of one of those moments where we really see uh, African American agency as being part of this conversation. Right, freedom isn't something that they're being given; they're they are dictating the terms about what that would mean, even in New York City. Uh, so they, um, the New York Manumission Society, relents. They hire black teachers, uh, which is a, an incredible triumph. Uh, but they also say, you know what? You guys are okay now. You don't want us to tell you what to do. So we're going to pull away and we're going to pull our funding away. And you can just sort of become part of the public school system. This uh, sounds almost like a tactical retreat rather than relenting. They, so they give in. They say, okay, you can have the school your way, but we're not going to provide you with funding anymore. Right. A, a tactical retreat or just what they were comfortable doing, how they're comfortable being reformers is them being, right, to go back to sort of the idea of childhood dependency, them being paternalistic, right? We're going to be kind to you and we're going to help you on our terms. And if you start telling me what you want or need, then that relationship doesn't work for me anymore. I'm going so to go somewhere else where I can own. be. Yeah. So let's, okay, we have this moment and let's have, uh, let's have, James McCune Smith, who is, you know, he's a student, he's rejecting colonization. The black community rejects colonization, and finally they force the school to give in. Now, we haven't talked about uh, Henry Highland Garnet yet, who also is going through the system at the same time. He, he, his path to the school was a, you know, it certainly sounds like a much rougher path. He, he, his family escaped slavery in Maryland, made their way to New York, and he's in this school. Tell us about him. What's his experience? Right. So even in this contradictory environment, uh, James McCune Smith had really flourished. He'd sort of benefited by following the rules and being a good student. Henry Highland Garnett, I'll tell you, is very difficult to find in the records. Uh, uh, James McCune Smith remembers Garnett as not the good little he was a bad boy. He kind of was. Yeah. Uh, he is starting his own uh, polit basically political action committee. He uh, and other teenagers are gathering together, making plans to uh, not only not um, uh, celebrate the 4th of July at, in protest, but quite, you know, just form an insurrection. They're like, we're going to get our education. We're going to go down south, and we are going to start a revolution. Now, now, it should be said that he is, whether he appears in the records or not, he is the minute he walks in, he's the guy who, when he walks in the room, everybody knows he's there, right? He's charismatic. He is, uh, uh, he, he's a big person. He's large. Yes. And, uh, you he, know, large in stature. Um, he's, he just, dom he's a presence. He is incredibly charismatic and he's, inc he's a leader from the minute he steps in the room. He's a leader all his life. And I mean, his, I don't know about his, uh, ancestry beyond the plantation, but, uh, the sort of rumor, the legend around him was that he was the grandson of a Mandingo warrior. And you can see where that the legend took place because he carried himself this certain regality and dignity uh, and charisma and a deep sense of who he was and what he was worth. He's, He's the person who doesn't go by the rules. Right. He, he chafes at authority, it seems like. Um, and uh, But he also, in terms of his circumstances, uh, has a much more difficult time with authority. Obviously, he was enslaved as a child, um, and that slavery doesn't leave him alone. You, you say he is, he's the person who always moves toward a fight. 
Absolutely. Uh, and to, to give you one example, one of the um, moments at the end of his tenure at the New York African Free School. So he is working as a cabin boy. He's, he's making extra money for the family. So who knows what that, that was affecting his attendance. I suspect it was. He comes off the boat, goes to his family's apartment, uh, and it's wrecked. Furniture is everywhere. Everyone is gone. Uh, he comes to. And he's fourteen years old. When he's this fourteen happens, right? years old. Yeah. Um, his neighbor Alexander Crummel has written about this uh, experience. He says they came knocking at the door. The father uh, basically jumps over rooftops. Says, "I don't." Who's know. they? Uh, the Who slave. I yes, the yeah. slave catchers. Um, uh, which in New York City, uh, right? Would, Slavery is legally over in 1827. That does not mean it's safe to be a black person in New York City uh, because we have slave catchers uh, that aren't too particular about whether you actually are enslaved or not because uh, any of your listeners who have watched 12 Years a Slave know very well, right, once you get down south, no one's going to ask any questions about your papers. They don't care what you have. Um, And this is what happens to Henry Helen Garnett's family. They knock on the door. The father is jumping over rooftops. The mother goes out the back door. They grab Henry Helen Garnett's sister and put her in jail. Uh, and her case is seen by uh, overseen by Richard Riker, who is another interesting character in this story. Uh, and Henry Helen, so he comes home and his whole world, as far as he knows, they've been taken, they're going back to slavery. Uh, everything he has had, all this progress that has been made is evaporated. And his response is to get a knife and walk the streets of New York looking to fight for his family, uh, which is, of course, an incredibly dangerous thing for a 14-year-old kid to do, like wandering up and down Broadway. Um, And because of that, uh, eventually, uh, actually, the family prevails in court, and they're uh, able to stay, but they send Henry to Long Island because they just say, you are too hot-headed. You're too, you can't get along. He's a warrior. (laughs) He's a warrior. He's got a warrior... That is personality. Ex- that is exactly right. So, so here are these two men, and let's—they are now graduates of the New York African Free School. James McCune Smith has been the model student, and he wants a higher education so he can pursue the continuation of the the ideal of citizenship and of uh, an accomplished life that that's been instilled in him in this school. And it comes pretty easy, doesn't it? Relatively easy, yes, compared to everyone else uh, in that school. He's such a spectacular student that he basically inspires both the black community and white benefactors to fund his trip to University of Glasgow to get a medical degree. He, ha- he did apply to places in America, and he was turned down on account of his complexion is the term that they used. Uh, but they send him to Glasgow, which accepts him, and he graduates there with honors. And by all accounts, uh, he was accepted and well-liked there. They sent And he him- becomes the first African-American from America, the first African-American with an MD, Yes, right? he is the first. There were other uh, African-Americans who were practicing medicine, but to earn an MD was unheard of. Uh, and he is the first one in the 1830s. And he, he returns to New York. I mean, goes to Paris first, but he comes back to <laughs> New York. And he is lionized in the community, right? He is... Yeah, they... Uh, when he returns, the whole community turns out. Uh, people who are teaching at the school... Uh, where he attended, uh, the movers and shakers, newspaper editors, uh, just a huge crowd of people. And they write it up in uh, the newspaper of the time, The Colored American, saying, James McCune Smith is our public property. He's ours. Um, He is going to fight for us. He's uh, the example we're going to hold up. And they are incredibly moved by the fact that he came back. Uh, that that loyalty, right? Because he was doing fine there. He was in Paris and Glasgow and had an MD, uh, but he knew to come back to his home and he stayed there all his life in New York and, City. And he comes back, he sets up a practice and it, he serves black and white patients. And to kind of move things along, he ends up a few years later becoming the doctor to a school that actually, or to an institution that 
in its own way, undermined the African free school. Not intentionally, but it, it ended up... No, not that... I'm sorry. So he ends up working for an institution that in many ways was seen as the institution that thwarted the hopes of other Africans like Henry Highland Garnet yes. to get an education. He goes to work for the Colored Orphan Asylum. Tell us about that institution. This is um, an interesting sort of next chapter in what do these reformers do now that they're they're not being able to dictate the terms of what freedom looks like. So James McHugh Smith is off in Scotland. The people left back in New York City, Henry Highland Garnett and his friends, are scrambling, right? There's no institution of higher education. They set up um, the Phoenix Society and uh, schools and the idea is that they are going to eventually create a college, or at least a higher learning institution, and they've been promised money um, by a prominent abolition abolitionist in his will. Long story short, very well-meaning white women who were sort of the sisters and the aunts of New York elites and the Manumission Society decide they need to do something about the black orphans in the city, and they start a small uh, orphanage. Uh, and guess what? The money goes to them. And so uh, Henry Helen Garnett and and the other black youth in the city are left with nothing. Now, this James McCune Smith at first um, isn't uh, his first interaction with the Colored Orphan Asylum is uh, one of the first times he really you see him get angry. Uh, you see him really fight against the authorities that be uh, the so. Within the second year of this small institution, which is really running out of somebody's house at first, nine children die. And they have a white doctor who writes up an explanation for this. And his explanation is, uh, well, you know, they're basically inferior. Their parents had bad morals. They're weak. It's lucky more of them didn't die. And James McCune Smith calls him out. One of the first things he does when he comes back, using science, using um, statistics about how uh, white children are actually dying at higher rates, and really calls out this doctor personally. Um, so it's sort of remarkable that 15 years later, he's going to be the doctor at the same place, uh, doing much better by these kids. But that's one of the first times we see him really fight. Well, um, and, and for Smith, one of, his, one of his operating principles is that scientific knowledge and statistical evidence will be enough to overcome the false prejudice of people prejudice that's based on ignorance that he can you know that he can use science to counter the the these kinds of 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 ill-informed assertions that this doctor was making that blacks are inferior that they're weaker that their parents that he's going to he is going to blind you with science. Absolutely. I mean, in some ways, this is what he's been taught his whole life. That's who he is in his person, right, in his, in his education, in his body. He's been told, you can set them straight. You work hard enough, uh, and you can change people's mind. And so he believes that science and facts, I mean, it makes us think a little bit of our own moments in some ways, right, that if we just get the facts out— People's mind will have to change, and that's what he does. Uh, you know, years before Du Bois, uh, W. E. B. Du Bois, who you know does a lot with statistics, and towards the same end, um, James McCune Smith is gathering statistics and um, documents, and to just make the case uh, that you're just misguided, you just have the wrong information. If I give you the right information, you'll change your mind, and we can all move forward. Yeah. Well. And I think he comes to a reckoning with that later on. Yeah. But meanwhile, the the uh, the Colored Orphan Asylum diverts funding away that was expected to go towards funding education for people like Henry Highland Garnet. And and yep. He so Garnet and his friends now are faced with finding finding the education that came relatively easily to Smith, almost on their own. I mean, it's not necessarily on their own, but it's not coming uh, easily from the help of a group of white benefactors. Right. Uh, they start their own literary societies or, you know, doing stuff within the community, but there's not enough funding. 
white benefactors do try to start a college in New Haven? Yeah, there is the Amos Beeman et al. try to start a, a black college in New Haven in the early 1830s. What happened? It is, it reaches incredible uh, opposition. There's a town hall that people say just, you know, people were spilling out all day and night at this town hall. And what I find so interesting about this opposition, or the way it's caged, or couched, I guess I should say, the way that sort of this opposition is voiced, is that we will be colonized, right? That uh, somehow, by letting African Americans become educated, will no longer be American, right? That is, which I just found uh, so striking that we have this sort of idea that uh, it's not just that we don't want this to happen, that it's a threat, and that it's a threat that's um, considered in terms of not being American. Well, the, the, the fear, as I read, it seems to be this kind of localized concern that if they beca- that if any one place becomes an educational center for blacks, that they will arrive in numbers that will overwhelm the white population. It'll become a different place, and they'll, they'll be colonized in that regard, which is so ironic that it, it's interesting that all of these things happen using the language of colonization because there's still that underlying subtext of let's, let's encourage Africans to go away Right. Instead of incorporating them into our society as one people. Right. And they see education as an explicit threat to that. Um, so the, the New Haven College goes down. It goes what down. What comes next? Prudence Crandall School in uh, Canterbury yeah. uh, comes next. And she uh, allows, decides to allow black uh, girls into her school. And once again, all hell breaks loose. We have incredible... Uh, gatherings and town halls, which people just come out of the woodwork. We have some of the most prominent lawyers. Andrew Judson uh, shows up and his phrasing, uh, there's one speech he makes that says, uh, African-Americans can never rise, semicolon, they should not be allowed to rise here, right? And there's the contradiction. You want to insist on inferiority, but you're terrified of anything that'll let them um, disprove that. Right. Uh, and he says, I am for colonization. It's sort of, but I would, one of the things that struck me is how these were absolutely welded in the imagination, that education had to mean colonization. And education in America was a direct threat to I, that idea. I, this is what I can't, understand, having read your book and just having kind of thought through the concept, if education works to colonize another place, why wouldn't it work at home? And this is what I find really striking. In a lot of these conversations, there's a lot of hand-wringing from behalf of the white reformers. And they say, they don't want to say, because they know better, that African-Americans can't elevate. They've seen it. They work with these people. What they say is, oh, education can change things, but prejudice will never go away. Education will never erase prejudice. So it's not that blacks can't change, it's that whites can't change. that whites can't change. We cannot, we, we will never get any better. And so it's better for everyone if we just pretend like this whole thing never happened. Thomas Jefferson talks about this, right? The, the memories of what we did will poison this well forever. There's, there's no future. So we have to just sort of re- hit the rewind button. So, so Smith is setting up his practice and Henry Hyman Garnet and all are struggling to find an education and it's not going to be in Connecticut. So what happens next? Right. So uh, more reformers start a school in uh, Canaan, New Hampshire, the Noise Academy. Uh, they do uh, announce it on July 4th that they're going to be putting out this charter, uh, and everyone jumps at the chance. And both men and women attend the school. Henry Helen Gornett and two of his school buddies, uh, Alexander Crummel and Thomas Sidney, decide to go to New Hampshire. And of course, right, we think, okay, great, they just get on a, a carriage and go, but they're African Americans traveling through New England. So that means they can't uh, ride inside the carriage. They have to ride on top of it. They can't, Regardless of the weather. Regard, yeah, in all sorts of weather. They have to, they're not allowed to go to inns, so they have to forage for themselves. One thing that I haven't yet mentioned, because so many things happen to Henry Allen Garnett, when he uh, is sent away after uh, the slave catchers come calling, he has some sort of injury that's unclear, but it, it leg, his knee in some uh, form, and it uh, troubles him throughout his life. It seems to get recurring infections. Eventually, he, it's amputated. 
so at this point, it's still deeply infected. So he's got. So he's he's, if not an invalid, he's certainly a person who's got some real physical. Uh, limitations as he's trying to get to New Hampshire. It doesn't matter, right? It, he's, it doesn't matter. You're nope. sleeping outside. If you want to eat, you go find something in the woods because right. they're not feeding you here. Right. Never mind that you can't really walk, that your leg is swollen, that you have a fever. These are all things that his friend described, that he's suffering this whole time on top of this carriage in the rain. But they get there. They and, do not give up. You know, th- this, this just so underscores for me the distinction between... New England being a place that might be opposed to slavery, but that has nothing to do with being opposed to racism. Yes. That that racism seems to be just fine. Anti-slavery and white supremacy are not opposites in the North at all or anywhere in the country. So so they get to, they, 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 they go to the Noise Academy and this new academy starts how does that go? Does he finally get the education he has craved? For a while, yes. Uh, again, he's sort of this leader. He is uh, charismatic. They talk about everyone is in his rooms. He's reading poems. Uh, he meets uh, Julia Williams, who uh, he will eventually marry. So there's And she was Roman. a student at the Prudence Crandall right. School, right? She, she is a match for him in every way. She, within one year, she is thrown out of the Prudence Crandall School, right, which was eventually the subject of violence, uh, and it has to close. And she just gets and goes to New Hampshire, uh, a woman, right, and to go to this co-ed school. So he's uh, doing well in his studies, uh, and... Over the summer, it, is, it does seem in uh, the 19th century, the summers are places where riots seem to ferment. Uh, the town people start to get together. Starts on July 4th. Uh, again, July a, again, 4th. Both Henry Helen Garnett and his friends are giving a speech on freedom uh, in a neighboring town. Meanwhile, back in Canaan, the town people, townspeople are deciding we're getting rid of this. School. And it's ironic that the, the, the town in which they are giving in which Henry Highland Garnett and friends are giving the talk is Plymouth. New yes, yes. Yes. Right. And while the he's giving the talk, the people back uh, in Canaan, New Hampshire, where the Noise Academy is, are doing what? They're d- deciding the school has to go. Um, and they actually come to the school and sort of make some threats. And at first, someone says, I know, you know, Joe, I know it's you. Go back home. I'm going to tell the, the magistrate. And it sort of dies down. But by August, it has reached fever pitch. And believe it or not, I always find this as a, a difficult uh, scene to even imagine, but it's in several newspapers. Uh, the townspeople get 90 oxen. 90? 90. 90. Some, some accounts say 95, but I think 90 is enough. They hitch them together. So, I mean, there must have been everyone's yeah. ox. Yeah. <laughs> like, there must yeah. have been for miles yeah. around. How many oxen are around? Uh, and they... Uh, hitch, it, hitch it up to the school itself and drag it off its foundations and into a swamp. And he- Alexander Cromwell says they were at this miserable work for two days. My goodness. So it's not sort of this heat of passion in the middle of the night. No, they are all out there in the middle of the day. For, so, you know, for going into August, right, you'd think they would need these oxen in the field, but they're so dedicated to destroying the school that they spend two days in August. So it's intentional and it's sustained. It's sustained. And, and and they destroy this academy. They destroy this academy. And meanwhile, all the students, including Henry Allen Garnett, are scared to death because what's going to happen next? Are they going to turn their ire on the students? And Garnett at this point is sick. He's been ha- having a fever for three or four days. Uh, but he's, he emerges as a leader and a warrior again. He tells them, get me some metal. He starts making bullets which, again, is an incredibly uh, courageous and dangerous thing for a young black man to be doing in the 1830s. And when well, they, in a town where people can muster 90 oxen yes. to pull your school down. Right, and no one's stopping them for yeah. two days, right? Yeah. So you don't have a lot of backup. Uh, and so when they do come for the boarding house that they're all sort of holed up in, uh, Henry Helen Gwinnett shoots one. So the bullet. mob is coming to attack the boarding house yep. where the school is. Right, where the... Yeah, well, where the, where the stu- students where, have run. Yeah, the yeah. school's gone, but where the students are, are actually yeah. seeking shelter, yes. they're going to come after the students. And what does Henry do? He uses this, these homemade bullets, and he shoots, they account say, one uh, shot. 
doesn't hit anyone, but it's enough to disperse everyone. Uh, and then they're told, Alexander Cromwell says he saved our lives that night. Willingness to fight back stops it. But they are told they have two weeks to get out of town. And as they're leaving, the um, the townspeople fire a shot sort of after them. As well, a and parting it's, they don't just fire a shot. They fire a shot from a cannon. Yes. I mean, it just... <laughs> Yeah. Right, and yeah. don't come back. Yeah, exactly. The pointed message, as it were. Yeah, what a tragedy. You know, where do you get an education now? What happens to... to right. You get back on that and ride on the top of a carriage and go back to New York and scramble for more. Um, eventually, he's able to attend the Oneida Institute, Beriah Green, who is another reformer, uh, and he's able to stay there till the end. He studies... Uh, Bible studies. He studies Hebrew. It's a um, it's a school which was quite popular at the time, where you had to work in the fields uh, for four hours a day to sort of just make the school profitable. And um, the idea was that it was good for your mind and it was good for your health. But of course, remember that Henry Helen Garnett can barely walk at this point. It must have been very difficult for him to do that labor requirement with the disability that he had. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but he did it. But he gets the education. And along this route, kind of throughout, he has certainly acquired a, a reputation as a powerful orator, right? He's, you know, already he is seen as, not only is he charismatic, but this man has the gift of language. Absolutely. People, I mean, so there's, wherever he was at school, people gathered. He's being asked to speak. He's, you know, of course, when they need three students from the school to give a 4th of July speech, he's top of the list. Uh, he gets asked by William Lloyd Garrison, who's the top abolitionist. He's the guy to give a speech at the uh, anti-slavery um, conference in, uh, in 1840, and this is an incredible honor. This is an era where a lot of the abolitionist conferences are still white-run and white speakers, and he lets Henry Helen Garnett speak. And Henry Helen Garnett had loved Garrison, as many people did. He'd started a literary society named after Garrison, so this was a sort of moment of real validation for him, and he's definitely a rising star. So Garnett is a rising star, Back in New York, Smith is also, he's not a celebrity in a sense, but he is a star too, right? He's a, he, he's a community leader. He's a builder. He's a, he's a builder. One of my favorite quotes about him that he says about himself is that he sees himself as like a piece of coral. Uh, just sort of agitating slowly, quietly. You might not notice, but in a hundred years, there's an incredible structure there. And this is how he operates in New York. He's not grabbing the limelight. I mean, everyone knows who he is because he's the darling boy, but, um, the, you know, the darling child of the community. Uh, but he's he's on news, he's editing newspapers, he's writing, he's going to, he's starting community groups, he's involved in um, uh, groups that are sort of pushing back against the slave catchers. Uh, he's doing all sorts of stuff in the community, but you never see him in the limelight. He's never it, giving big speeches. Would it be safe to say that he is a man who's trying to work within the system to change the system? Is that too strong? No, I, I, that's absolutely, I think, who is. He's a builder. He's an institutionalist. He believes, he's an optimist. And so he believes that if we work hard, America is the sort of place that will eventually reward them, reward us. We just need to teach them who we are. Now, he and Garnet were friends at the African Free School, and they remain friends, right, during this period, or are they growing apart? Uh, no, they remain, they're friends during this period. Uh, Henry Highland Garnett settles for a while up in Troy in Geneva in upstate New York. He's a minister there. Again, record crowds, beloved, and uh, James McGoon Smith is in New York City. So they're talking to each other through newspapers and general um sort of gossip, uh, but they're not in the same they're room not in the at the same, same place. Time. Uh, I mean, there's one meeting uh, that they're at where they both uh, decide to pledge their lives uh, to never stopping until everyone is free. And they both refer to this later, and that's in the late 1830s. So I think they are both in some of these rooms at the same time, but they're both sort of on parallel they're tracks par at this point. And they think very much they're working for the same goals in different ways. Now, for Garnet, there is a speech in oh, yeah. 1843, is yes. it, that 
really just is kind of transformative, right? What happens? Oh my gosh, this speech, uh, people talk about it. They, you know, they say you've never heard or you've never felt lightning in your veins until you've heard Henry Helen Garnett speak. Uh, we don't know exactly what is said at the speech. We get something years later because it's so incendiary, they won't write it down in the convention minutes. Where, <laughs> where did the speech take place? In Buffalo. Um, in and what, who, who did he deliver it to? So this was to a meeting. They've been having meetings like this for a while that refer to them as colored conventions or conventions of colored people. And these are political conventions in which African-Americans are running the show, right? They, there's the anti-slavery societies, and that's great, but we are putting, we're the speakers, we have the agenda, what do we want to happen? So these are places where the black community writ large is advocating for its own interests. Absolutely. These are national uh, organizations that people travel from all over. Um, we have, for instance, Frederick Douglass at this meeting. We have Amos Beeman at this meeting. Uh, it's a who's who, right? This is just where you go. And it's also a place where everybody can be in the same room at the same time. Um, as sort of an aside, uh, at least one historian thinks that it was at one of these or a meeting like this that John Brown's raid gets planned. So, th like, this is where the action happens. He invokes um, violent insurrection. The way I read it, he, he invokes these heroes, but he says explicitly in the speech that we have, we can't go there yet, but how about you stop working? And we know what that will, that will still lead to violence, right? So he's not sort of saying take up arms necessarily. Uh, and this is in, right, this is after David... Uh, Walker, uh, his incendiary um, speech, which, of course, he was dead within the year. Um, Nat Turner's rebellion was in 1831. There's a great fear of insurrection. Uh, he gives this speech and uh, just basically saying, I'm not playing anymore. We need to rise up. I'm telling my enslaved brethren, stop this right now. It's never going to get any better. We need to take it for ourselves. And what happens? The entire convention is shocked into silence for a few minutes. And then immediately people start saying, we can't let this out. There will be blood in the streets. Frederick Douglass, who we think of and who certainly becomes this incredibly rebellious force and this incredibly powerful force, says, this, I don't want any part of this. This, this, will, um, this will start a war if we let this out. This will be the death of all of us. Um, and Frederick Douglass and Henry Helen Garnett go back and forth, accounts say up to two hours debating. At the convention. At the convention. I know people had longer attention spans yeah. in that time. <laughs> uh, and people fought on both sides of whether this should be published right away or, or uh, there's a, a contingent that says, well, how about you let us edit it a little? How about you let us, you know, s polish this down a little? No, he absolutely will not. Uh, and we ne so it's so interesting when you read those convention min minutes, I think of it as almost a, a black hole, right, in the way that we can't see what is in the middle, but everything is spinning Everything's around revolving around this speech that is so volatile, it can't be published, but no one ever forgets it. No one, years later, they talk about it. Now, it does eventually get published, but not for another five years. And it gets published with uh, David Walker's appeal, which is also this famous call to arms. Uh, so we sort of see this as this sort of this passing of this revolutionary torch. Um, now, this is at a moment, and uh, Frederick Douglass and James McCune Smith and see sort of the other side of this equation, they're believers in moral suasion. And that, again, is sort of, the, again, the idea. This, is, this was the predominant idea. If we can move people's hearts and minds, that's what we should do. The Christian thing is not to go to war. Violence is not the answer. Be patient. Be good. It'll happen eventually. He has now become the person who took the bridge too far. And how does the black community react to him after this? Do they do they disengage from him or are they? And they don't disengage. He's um, a, more of a controversial figure. But I mean, I think after that speech, even people who disagree with it are in awe of it. Uh, they respect him as a leader. Even in their caution, he influences every single person in that room. Uh, that Frederick Douglass and other people will be either explicitly or implicitly quoting Garnett for years to come. I think in that speech, uh, and I'm not alone in this, other historians agree, uh, he sort of changes what's possible in black abolitionism. The radical stance he took in 1843 has become mainstream in a way. Yep. 
Absolutely. So now everyone's radical. Now has has the the builder Smith gotten to that point by fifty three? Is he now radical as well? He's more radical. He's come along right? by eighteen fifty three. Most of the black community has left this idea that moral suasion is going to do anything. Um, we have uh, James McCune Smith and Henry Highland Garnett and Frederick Douglass all become friends with John Brown, who are going to, you know, is going to take it into his own hands. Uh, but James McCune Smith at some point says, you know what, we're going to have to beat their heads and then we can put facts into them. They're just not going to embrace this. He's, so, he's so just, he realizes that his idea that that science and rationality will win hearts, he finally realizes that's not enough. That's not enough. I don't think he ever relinquishes this idea, but his idea is like, first, we're going to beat the hell out of them. Then maybe they'll listen. (laughs) We're going to take our freedom, and then once we have it, then we can work on sort of elevating the minds of uh, people who are prejudiced. So what happens then? What's his position once war happens? He... Is a warrior. He gets. He invites Frederick Douglass into his church, uh, Shiloh uh, Presbyterian Church, but regularly that, that's overflowed. In, that's in New York. Yes, right? that, he's back in New York City, um, and journalists would come to listen to him give speeches and just faint with the power of his uh, prose. And he and Frederick Douglass, which you know, if you could be a fly in a wall, would go into this church and tell uh, young black men, "You need to fight." This is our chance. Get in the mix. Now, in New York, uh, the governor wouldn't let African-American men be armed. You had to go up to Massachusetts. There was no um, colored regiment, which is what they would call it, in New York. So you're sort of telling people go up and fight and go up in Massachusetts and do it. Um, because New York won't let you. Because, which, which leads to all sorts of problems. Yeah. Uh, but New York won't let you. So he's very, he, he jumps in the fray. He sort of backs off. He doesn't abandon it, but he... He shifts his focus away from the African civil, civilization movement to fighting the war. Yes. To support um, for the war yes. and encouraging, encouraging blacks to get out there and, and be part of the war effort. Right, to fight, yes. So... New York won't let blacks serve in the militia or in the army, but in 1863, they decide to invoke the draft, right? Yes. Which will be a draft only for white people, and since wealthier white people can buy out their service, it's really a draft only on middle class or poorer whites, really poorer whites. Yeah. And that leads to some terrible stuff. Yes. Uh, right. And even, and there's, you know, uh, a lot of unrest about this. There's a lot of, um, it's quite clear that the populace doesn't want this draft. Uh, and you could stave it off if you allowed black people to enroll and make your quota, but it doesn't happen. And uh, so they decide to uh you know, hold the draft, and that morning um, there is a crowd of people, and they destroy the draft office, uh, and it becomes a three-day conflagration. And the violence is, quite frankly, unspeakable, what happens. Um, People are murdered in the streets. There's a level of sadism that is uh, really hard to convey. Uh, Children, women, men hunted down, any uh, all black neighborhoods are attacked, uh, and uh, they one of the first things they attack is uh, the New York Colored Orphan Asylum on the first day. The goal is achieved at the end, right? There's the war ends, the Thirteenth Amendment is passed, and this is your book ends with this magical moment, I think, which is when. Congress is getting ready to pass the 13th Amendment, and they want a black speaker, the first black man to address Congress, right? Mm-hmm. Who do they pick? Henry Highland Garnett, uh, and, which I always think probably, you know, did not sit that well with Frederick Douglass. No, they ask him, right? And in some ways, it's an incredible honor and it's an incredible testimony to how instrumental he was to getting to that moment. Now, he and James McCune Smith had been having quite um, stark disagreements. In they Prince were estranged and in after Garnett 
endorse colonization, right? They, they had been. They they'd had a couple of reconciliation. When uh, once the Civil War happened, they had sort of gone to a couple of events together. But they still had, you know, they were still sort of on, on opposite ideological sides of what the path forward should be. Um, so he, Garnett gives this speech uh, in which he says, slavery is not dead yet, and to kill it is a lot. This, we've only paid a little bit of the debt. Right? He, he very much sees that— This is a speech that he gives to Congress. To Congress. And, uh. and, and Congress, I'm sure, thought that it was going to be a kind of triumphalist. <laughs> you would think, <laughs> Free yeah. Free at last, yeah. I know. Th- you know. Thank you so much, Congressman. Yeah. I'm so grateful. Yeah, I don't I need anything else. No, no, no. no. No, I mean, in some ways, it's it's the Thirteenth Amendment. You know, this it's a moment for celebration. And what does he say? I mean, what the speech that he gives? What's his point? His point is this isn't over. I really that I mean, it's not ratified yet, so it, it isn't actually over. But he says that you know, snapping our fingers and making slavery illegal is just the first step towards real freedom. There's a larger debt to be paid, and we all need to pay it. Um, again, he's way ahead of his time in thinking, like, this is not—one law is not going to solve this problem. Uh, and he—a metaphor that he uses a lot is sort of slavery rising from its grave. And he said there's a, a lot of work to really kill this monster. So and the work—the struggle isn't over. In fact, it's just begun. Yes. He gives an anti-slavery speech as if— the Thirteenth Amendment wasn't on the table because he thinks, okay, you know, and he's also I've seen I've seen lots of well-intentioned moves before. I know better at this point, and so he calls Congress out to keep up the work. The don't pat yourselves on the back. The work is still ahead of us. Um, and then, because this is going to be published, it needs uh, an introduction, and he asks his schoolmate, his friend, his rival. James McCune Smith to write the introduction. And so these two schoolboys who met at the New York African Free School in the 1820s are at this moment of great transformation. The passage of the 13th Amendment reunited in the publication of this speech. And what does, do you get the sense in Smith's commentary that there is a reconciliation going on here? Like, is it reflective or is it a... Yes. I mean, I, I think in some ways it's an um, an epi- epitaph for both of them. It's an elegy for both James McCune Smith, who knows he's at the end of his life, and for Henry Highland Garnett. He talks about the New York African Free School, and he talks about their days together and how everyone from the moment he met him in school, he admired him as a leader, how uh, everyone uh, knew that Henry Helen Garnett would go on to great things, how he never flinched. Uh, there's a moment he says, uh, he's done his work, his hands are clean. And I think in some ways, James McCune Smith is talking about Garnett and his admiration for Garnett, but also about himself. We've done our work. There's the, you know, it's almost like a storybook ending in your wonderful story. This, this, their lives come full circle at a very dramatic and important moment. As you reflect, having written this book and studied the lives of these two very different but very extraordinary men living through an extraordinary time, how do you assess their lives? And what do you think the significance of their life is in retrospect, thinking of this book as a whole and thinking of what they achieved in their lifetimes? What did what does their relationship and what do their lives mean? Oh, well, that is a great, complicated question. I, I think in for, twenty-five words or right, less. For us, I think it means right. This is a story we need to hear. Uh, we still think of um, the years leading up to the Civil War as uh, a time in which people are deciding whether or not to give freedom. Uh, you know, uh, what freedom will mean in terms of who writes up the laws. And their lives show us that freedom itself was defined by people who were told they couldn't have it, uh, that we wouldn't have had the Civil War, we wouldn't have the country we have now, warts and all, um, without sort of the energy, the brilliance, and the 
passion of these two men who just refused from childhood on um, to take what they were given, to sort of follow, uh, to learn the lessons that weren't going to serve them. And I think, right, that's a lesson we still need to wrestle with. Anna May, I, I cannot tell you how much I got out of and enjoyed your book. It is, it's not just good. It's a wonderful book. I, I encourage everybody to place an order today. Go to Amazon. Go to your neighborhood <laughs> bookstore first. If for any reason it's not there, go to Amazon tonight and order Educated for Freedom by Anna Mae Duane. It's New York University Press, and it's an astonishing and astonishingly good story. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Walt. This has been fun. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank Anna Mae Duane and Yukon Hartford. To listen to more great history stories with deep Connecticut connections, visit gratingthenutmeg.libsyn.com or subscribe to Grading the Nutmeg on your favorite podcast app. And for great Connecticut history tales in print, read and subscribe to Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history at ctexplored.org. This is Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.